podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, this is an Anfield Rap special uh, with me, Gareth Roberts. Uh, I'm going to be speaking to Professor Phil Scraton today, uh, the Hillsborough campaigner, the author of Hillsborough The Truth, and also a professor of criminology at Queen's University in Belfast. Uh, Phil, uh, you'll be a name that's that's familiar to, to a lot of people, uh, but just love to give you the introduction for those that your name isn't familiar to. But um, going all the way back to to the 15th of April 1989 you know you say you say in your book Hills with the Truth about that you know like a lot of us you were watching on television I think there was snooker coverage on at the time and then all of a sudden that snooker coverage switches over and we see the sites that are also familiar now at, at Leppens Lane and, and, a, and a disaster unfolding I just wondered where, where really you know when you're watching when you're hearing the news come in where was the point where you felt people were being wronged here and that and that you wanted to get involved because you say that you you went and met people coming back from Hillsborough and started speaking to them then, started getting those sort of first person, you know, accounts of what had happened. You know, what made you sort of get up and go and do that really? What what, what was the moment for you where you thought, hang on, this isn't right? Well, I think if I go back to the day itself, I mean, you know, when it... I've thought about this a lot. This was only the second semi-final that I'd missed in many years, and uh, I was always I was always there. I always went to the games, tried to get tickets for finals as well. Um, and at that time, I was a season ticket holder. And I guess not going to the game. I was in another part of the house, and my son called me and he said, "Dad, you know, come down quick. Uh, there's something going on in Sheffield," and I. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's the match. And I said, the match isn't on telly, love. And he said, no, it, it is. Come down quick. And I went down and, of course, coincidentally, the snooker, as you, as you rightly pointed out, was also on from Sheffield. They were at the Crucible. And I just watched and couldn't believe, like many other people, what we were seeing, you know. And it was immediately obvious that this was not crowd trouble. It was immediately obvious that and those of us who've been at these sort of games, I talk about being at the uh, Liverpool Wolves game when we won the first division and being crushed there and getting out over the wall at the front and pulling people out of there. Of course, there were no um, the, the, there were no fences in those days. And I talk a bit about that, and uh, I could see straight away that this was that that, that, that this was overcrowding. Um, but I didn't know. I didn't know about the pens. I didn't know how that... I didn't know at that moment about the layout of the ground. It was a coincidence that that night I was um, coming into town because I was working on another book, actually. It was on prisons. I was meeting with the researcher and we, we, I met in town and we were in the pub and people were coming back into the pub and they were all telling us the same story. They didn't know each other. And you knew immediately as soon as you heard the same accounts from, you know, 10, 15 different people, you knew immediately what had happened. It was it was absolutely clear. When I heard at that point about um, the exit gates being opened and uh, people going into already, you know, going into uh, the ground and there not being any stewarding inside and then about the one in six gradient tunnel, of course, I didn't know it was that steep, but it was. We, they were talking about how steep it was, and then they couldn't get back up the tunnel. You knew immediately um, that, 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 that this was uh, a serious breakdown 
in control of the of the stadium by those who had the authority, the police and the stewards. That was all very well at that point because we were all caught up then with, you know, mourning, you know, mourning those who died and knowing mm. it could have been us and knowing people who, who whose friends and loved ones had died. And all that followed immediately afterwards, the, the, the mile of scarves between Anfield and Goodison Park and the wonderful tributes in, 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 in the shrine that Anfield became, um, all of that uh, was, was what I think took over until the middle of the week when what was a universal feeling, I think, of, um, of sympathy for those who died turned almost overnight, well, it turned in the morning when the Sun and seven other newspapers published the allegations. I mean, the Sun was the worst. And when I read what the Sun had published and I compared it and contrasted it with what people had told me and also my own knowledge of going to games, it was patently obvious that somebody of the status of Kelvin McKenzie as a senior um, press man, you know, there he was, editor of a major newspaper. Whatever we think of the Sun, it was a major newspaper. He would not have published that off the top of his own mm. head. And so immediately, from my point of view, it was the awareness that there was some form of a propaganda um, uh, campaign being launched by those in authority. That was the moment. It was that very moment, having, you know, Having seen and been part of the mourning process, having realised how close um, so many other people had come to dying, and also that it could have been any of us, you know. Death was random. It could have been any of us uh, at, any of those, at any of those games, really. Knowing that and, and, and realising that and putting that alongside this appalling... Um, set of allegations things that you could hardly comprehend you know that 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 fans were were making you know sexual remarks about a, a, a young woman who was dying who turned out in the end to be one of the Hicks sisters you know um that they were robbing from the dead you know I mean it was incomprehensible to me you know I you know I'm from here I know people I'm part of it. We would have been the first people to have stopped that from happening, yeah. you know, had it happened. So to me, this wasn't coming off out, out of Kelvin, out of the ether, you know. This was orchestrated. Uh, and that was the moment. Um, I went away, actually, uh, a, a couple of weeks later with my students. I was working at Edgehill at the time on uh, work we were doing in prisons in, in, in Scotland. And I could see the way the tide had turned against um, Liverpool in, in general, uh, Merseyside, against uh, all of the fans. I could see the way the tide had turned. And I actually went to a phone box on a caravan site where we were staying. And uh, with a pile of 10 peas, I rang Liverpool City Council and said, 
We've got to have an alternative discourse on this. We've got to find another way of telling the truth. And that's how the Hillsborough Project was founded. I came back from that. I met with Kiva Coombs. I uh, discussed how we could do this. And um, they funded uh, what turned out in the end to be initially a three-year project. Well, it was a one-year project extended to three. And then I continued it to five years um, based at the place I worked, which was Edge Hill and uh, it's now Edgehill University, and um, we set up the Hillsborough Project, and it was right from that moment, it was to tell the story that in the crown that night, I had heard as people came in and, uh, and, and explained the dreadful circumstances that they'd experienced. And that was the commitment, and from that moment onwards, it never crossed my mind that... Um, I would withdraw from that commitment. It was a commitment I made. Of course, I never realized at the time that we'd be sitting here 28 years down the line, still with the case live, you know, but we are. I mean, what what, what I find staggering about listening to you saying, I feel is that, you know, we see, we know those headlines oh so well now. And, you know, we did something on the Anfield app on it ourselves this week, uh, just going again on why why the sun is still banned and boycotted and everything else in Liverpool, and rightly so. But, you know, all those people coming back from the match that night, you know, there's 20 odd thousand, you know, people who, who can class themselves as survivors almost of, of that situation. They're a primary source of information there. They're witnesses to what went on. They can tell you what, you know, what happened and, and you hear them talking about it in the pub. You know, why, why as, as sources of information, why was that not mined from the very start by the media? You know, why, how come it's so easy, if you like, for a, for such a, horrible set of lies to be planted in, in, in the national consciousness and it, and it almost lie unchallenged and, and, and become accepted and become, you know, in inverted commas, the truth of the situation. Yeah, it was a perfect example of how those in power can tar people with the same brush. And it wasn't even a brush that applied on that day, but it was a brush that had been developing over time, which was the whole construction and to a large extent, the mythical construction of hooliganism. And that was once that was applied, uh, nothing else, there was no other, there, there was no other lens through which it was going to be seen. There was one other dynamic that was occurring at that moment as well. And it was a dynamic about Liverpool, Liverpool City. It was a dynamic about militants, and it was a dynamic about the politics of the city. It was a dynamic about, well, you've seen it, you know, over the years, how many times have we seen the words whinging scousers? You know, it was a dynamic that was about people standing up against um, a Tory government. It was a dynamic about the city feeling that it had been left, really, um, and had been overshadowed by so much else going on. So the broader politics of the time was part of that, were, were part of that context. And so... When, when the negative narrative was written in the media, and it was ex it, it 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 was completely, um, uh, I, I guess the best way it was that that I can describe it was that it was a, a perfect, a perfect moment for um, those of us from Liverpool, who'd struggled against that reputation. It was the perfect moment for the critics 
to be able to find a very big stick to beat the city with. So that context was, was, is really important. And in retrospect, the vitriol that we saw written in the media. I mean, sometimes when I read out in public now, and I did it in a, in, in a talk recently, uh, I read out some of the things that were said about people, not by um, gutter journalists, but by well-respected commentators, yep. in, t in not just in the tabloids, but in the broadsheet press. And you read that out, and people are gobsmacked now to hear that. When in actual fact, it fitted a constructed narrative about what the city was about, about what its, who, the, who its people were. And I think that became all part of the same, the, 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 the same process. I mean, you mentioned the talk. I attended a talk that you did at Liverpool University recently, and I thought one of the really important things you brought up there was the was the concept of owning the truth. And I think what we saw, obviously, for you know, for the best part of three decades, is that the truth has been owned elsewhere. That a different story was allowed to grow legs and run around the world, and it's been hard to sort of claw that back for so long. Um, and yet, you know, what sort of gets me and gets a lot of people that I speak to is that you know. We've now had the independent panel report, of, of which you were a huge part. We've now had the longest inquest in English legal history, and that concluded that it was an unlawful killing, that the fans were blameless, that Duck and Fields responsible for manslaughter by gross negligence. And yet, despite all that, you still see, you still see people who say, who doubt it, who, who say things like, "Well, there's there's no, you know, there's no smoke without fire," and, and this sort of thing, and that just shows you that idea of owning the truth. I mean, do you feel yet we're at the point where we can say we do legitimately own the truth in terms of what is the right version of events of what happened at Hillsborough, or is there still in 2017 work to be done, education to continue on this subject? Well, I think we own the truth, and I think there's no question about that. I think people who were there on the day and people who went through that um, dreadful experience of survival and those who went through the, in the evening, went through the, uh, and, and through into the next morning, went through the, the, the dreadful process of identifying the dead, their, their dead loved ones, uh, they knew the truth. They knew absolutely what the truth was. There was never any question about the truth in their, in, in, in their eyes. But the truth was reconstructed. And it wasn't just reconstructed by the media. That's too easy a, uh, a line to take. As I was saying, you know, Kelvin McKenzie's not a stupid man. He had to believe that he could make, he could stand up uh, or make that story stand up. And of course, we've been able to demonstrate now exactly who spanned the story, <clears throat> how they spanned the story, and, um, and, 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 and the full fabrication of it. And as early as 1999, when I wrote the, 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 the first edition of Hillsborough, The Truth, I deliberately chose the word, The Truth, in order to reclaim the word from him and from, from the son. It was obvious what I was trying to do. But I had to be confident I could do that. Well, I was confident from what I knew from, or, or from, from, from people's direct experiences. But gradually, you were able to piece together, um, which, was, which came about through the first edition of Hills with the Truth and through Jimmy McGovern's film, which I'd, I'd, I'd worked with Katie Jones on, um, supporting her, her, her work uh, as a, our project and also in our reports. We were telling a different story. We were telling the story that 
I'd first heard that night in the pub, but now we could tell it in terms of in depth and breadth and fill it out in terms of how the investigations, the first inquest and all the rest of it had masked the reality of Hillsborough. So we were exposing that. Um, but, you know, to go back to, the, to, go back to the, the key point about how that is then owned and the people who are still doubters, if people today stop you in the street and say, look, there's no smoke without fire, Liverpool fans must have at least been partly responsible, I am, there is nothing more we can do to convince them. But what we have, where it matters, you know, where it really matters, which is, first of all, general public opinion, secondly, uh, in the politics of the whole debate, Thirdly, in the legal processes and all that's followed and the potential for prosecutions, uh, where it matters, the truth is unequivocal. It's not just the work that we did prior to the panel. It's not just the panel's report, which is absolutely significant. And when you think about the Taylor report with its, its it, the, the, the thin the thin, you know, three-page, four-page chapters, and you compare that to the 400-page panel report and all the resources behind that that people can, can, can access now online just at the flick, of, the flick of a button. You know, when you look at that, there is, it is so comprehensive. It's the undeniable truth. Truth is always relative in terms of the edges of truth, but there are certain elements of truth, the core of truth, which is undeniable. And there is nobody now who can stand over an allegation about fans' behaviour at Hillsborough. There is no one who can stand over, they can claim it, but they can't stand over the fact that somehow the police or the stadium owners or the architects or the FA who've got out of this very lightly, I might say, um, any of those bodies, the ambulance service even, they can look at that and say they weren't in part responsible for the tragedy of Hillsborough. And I don't just mean the disaster itself, I mean the unfolding tragedy that came afterwards. And also the manufacture of truth through lies. That's all being exposed. And of course the panel did that. And we could have walked away at the end of that and said, that's it. There's no more to say. And a lot of families, a lot of survivors have said that that was their day, you know, yeah. in that sense. That 12th of September was their day. But, you know, we've now gone through into the inquests and the truth has been, despite the phenomenal opposition that came from the South Yorkshire police, witness after witness after witness, dragging the inquests on for an extra year when they should have been completed in one year, you know, all of that. Um, and the reality is that in a court of law, after so much expense, after all of those officers, former officers, had come and made those statements, that question, did the fans in any way contribute to the disaster? One single word from the jury foreperson. No. End of story. How did they die? What is the short form verdict? Unlawful killing.
and then a string of 25 riders saying who was responsible for that unlawful killing. That is unequivocal. That's after two years' evidence. That's after all the mud had been thrown again. That's after those officers who'd been silenced by the panel report came and had their day in court and then were fundamentally defeated in terms of the lies that they told. A jury of ordinary men and women like you and me went into that court, listened for two years and said no to the question of fans' behaviour. That's the end of the story. Whatever happens now in terms of the prosecutions, we've had it, at, well, in three levels. We've had it in the work we did in terms of the Hillsborough Project reports and my book and Jimmy's film. We've had it in terms of the Hillsborough Independent Panel report, which was 153 findings and exonerated the fans. And now we've had it in a court of law. If somebody comes up to me in the street and says, yeah, but, you know, the fans were responsible. What more can I say other yeah. than I'm very sorry that you can't see what's at the end of your nose? You know, I'm very sorry that you're so bigoted, you're so prejudiced against the city, against the fans, against... We've got to remember this, and I think this is a really quite significant point. Some of these people have lived believing that lie and have promulgated that lie for over two decades. They have to back down an awful long way from that. So they're not going to, are they? Some will, and some will do it with real, um, with, 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 with real honour. But a lot of others won't. They've believed it for too long. And I don't mean fans who get into appalling chants at matches, and there are only a minority of them, we know that. I don't mean that. I mean people who won't actually face it. I spoke to... Um, a guy who was working on the, um, the Hillsborough documentary with Dan Gordon, and he's the editor. And he was talking about people close to him who won't watch the film, who won't read the book, but who will still stand by their prejudice. That, I believe, is down to the fact that they have an awful long way to roll back from the mm. position they've taken over time, and it's too much of an effort for them. I mean, going back to, to 89, you mentioned, you, you you know, putting all the, the money in the phone box, speaking to the council, you get that project going, uh, the Hillsborough Project, two reports produced. I mean, back then, obviously, you know, in talking about owning the truth, or we've owned the truth amongst a small group, if you like, for a, long, yeah, a very long yeah. time. But what was the reaction to that Hillsborough Project report? I mean, you know, I've read some stuff about sort of some people saying, almost pointing the finger at you and saying, well, you're, you're just staring families here and that sort of thing. I think that was the hardest thing for me to take um, and, and the people who worked on the project with me. Uh, when the Liverpool um, Daily Post actually ran an editorial, an editorial, you know, <laughs> stating that the second tranche of money that we were getting from the Liverpool City Council was basically wasted. You know, why would we give, why would we fund a project like this? And that was before the second major report, No Last Rights, came out. Um, yeah, um, people ringing me up, people uh, contacting me, letters, uh, you know, eventually death threats, you know, um, whole range of stuff like that, which I always try to play down because, you know, it's not about me. Um, it's about the actual project we were engaged with. But that went through at, at a whole range of levels. In the middle of the first inquests, 
I was determined uh, to get um, to, 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 to take a, a judicial review. I wanted the families to take a judicial review because Marshall had been allowed, who'd been the, um, the senior officer outside the ground at the Leppings Lane end, he'd been allowed to come in and grandstand and make parallels with you know demonstrations in London and goodness knows what else. Um, and that was one that was one issue, but also the other big issue was the 315 cutoff that the, the, the ruling that the first coroner had was that uh, everybody would have received, everybody who died would have received um, uh, irreversible injuries by 315. Well, he said 312 and he rounded it up to 315. Uh, and so he said there would be no evidence after 315 when it was absolutely patently obvious to all of us that there were people who'd been left for dead who came round after 315. So why would not an intervention in other people, in, in, uh, an appropriate intervention in other people's suffering, why would that have not um, led, led to... Uh, uh, to their recovery. So, you know, those were the two big issues that I wanted a judicial review of the first inquest. And of course, it, it went to the families and the families voted. And, you know, the lobby that I was pushing for lost by a few votes. And so we didn't have the judicial review and we ended up with an accidental death verdict. You know, they were all, that was all really hard stuff to take at the time because you could see that history might have been quite different. You know, if some of that material that we had, we were accessing, had come out at that time. Um, so yeah, I think that um, from that point of view, the the frustration um, mounted uh, when Jimmy's film came out. Jimmy McGovern's film Hillsborough came out. It was based around, as people will know, it was based around the the, the lives of three families. And in typical and brilliant Jimmy McGovern style, it was a drama documentary rather than a straight documentary. And it, I think it touched so many people. It was shown in over 50 countries and, and all of that, and it was award-winning and so on. And that's when I met the late, great Katie Jones, who eventually came to work with us on the panel. And, um, you know, when that came out, I thought, yeah, at least people are seeing a different version of events here. But that was the moment that I decided to write Hills for the Truth and try and tell the whole story in 1999. And of course, I was, and as that was happening, I was beginning to access more material and find what had really gone on behind the scenes at the time. But, you know, it, from, from my point of view, it was absolutely vital to ride above all of the, the, the negatives and try and go for the positives. You know, Hillsborough The Truth came out in 99. There were the private prosecutions of Duckinfield and Murray, which followed a year later. It was all happening at the same time. And when Hills with the Truth was um, serialized in the mirror, the Sunday mirror, and revealed something we'll go on to talk about in a minute, the review and alteration of statements, when that, uh, police statements, when that came, came out and was exposed, and all the newspapers covered it, I thought, this is it. And then nothing happened for nearly 10 years. You know, what I call the fallow decade. You know, it was just as if, well, that's all been said, but yeah, so what? And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it because I really, I really thought when I saw that exposure that we had in 1999, I got, um, I got some pretty serious threats at that point. Then I wrote the second edition in 2000, the year that, which, which discussed, you know, the charges against Duckenfield and Murray and the hung jury over Duckenfield, etc., in the criminal court. You know. 
I thought this is it now. You know, this is it. We're going to see some real movement. And it is, um, I, I, I think it's indicative of the way in which um, that the government at the time, which was obviously a Labour government, let down the families seriously and let down even their local MPs. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, I don't want to dwell on it too much. You said you don't want to dwell on it yourself, but I think people are listening to this. They're probably thinking, what, you know, what is this about threats? How does this, how does this happen? I mean, I've, I've heard you talk about it before and, and you've documented it before and it, it, it's literally people ringing you up and, and talking about your family and things like that, wasn't it? Yeah, on the next directory number. Um, you know, my number has never been known and, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was directly, you know, basically told me exactly where I lived, what time I took my kids to school, you know, what their ages were, all of that. Somebody who knew very clearly who, 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 um, who we were and where we lived. And I always, I've always lived very openly. I don't, I don't try to set my, my home phone number. I don't, I, you know, I don't, yeah. I, I don't uh, try and hide away. Um, and it was, it, it shook me. I mean, you know, it shook me a lot. I was on my own with the boys at the time and they were very young. And, you know, I don't think I, I ever had a decent night's sleep after that. Um, I never really believed anything would happen. I knew in, in deep down um, that it was the threat that was the was the issue, that people were trying to scare me. Um, I never felt anything would, would happen, but you always have that worry. Um, and I've always, I've always believed and I, I reported it immediately to the police. I walked into my local cop shop and told them. And uh, when they asked me who did I think was responsible, I said, well, I don't think I have to look much further. I don't think it's you guys, <laughs> but I think, you know, it's people who have connections, very, very clear connections. But that's my hunch. That's my belief. And it always has been ever since. Who would have had that knowledge? Who would have had that vested interest? Um, that This wasn't a crank phone call. You know, this was something that was really meant to, to, to scare me. But as I say, I, I don't want to, I, I suppose I don't want to get into all of that too much because from my point of view, that has always detracted from the real issue. Mm. Um, and the real issue for me, uh, which had actually developed in the period immediately before that, was the discovery. And I think this was what the catalyst was for that phone call uh, because I disclosed it in my book and I disclosed it in the media was that I discovered the extent to which um, the police evidence had actually been altered. And I think that was the real catalyst. I mean, on that as well, and I think this is really a fascinating part of the whole story. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned a few times now Jimmy's film. Uh, if anyone hasn't seen that, would recommend it. It's a must-watch to understand what's happened at Hillsborough. Um, but, but a policeman, or a, a, someone from the police gets in touch with you, don't they, and, and start, start to tell you about... What happened to some of the police statements? Well, there was a there was a there was a background to it. I mean, I I came in one night from from teaching a an, an, uh, an evening class in the university, uh, put the kids to bed, and you know I was just flicking through the channels like you do, um, and there was this guy with long hair um, talking about um, policing, and I realised that behind him. The, the, the way they'd set the, the studio up was behind him was a broken barrier. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's Lepping's Lane. This guy's talking about Hillsborough. It was a program, I think, called Aftermath. And it was about the aftermath of disasters. And they had other, they had the Moorfield Tube disaster and stuff on. 
And um, I realized this guy was a police officer. And he used a word that just hit me between the eyes. He just said, you know, very matter of fact, without any question, I felt that I was really let down that way. They, all my colleagues felt they were let down. He said, um, especially when my statement was sanitized. <laughs> sanitized? What on earth does that mean? By a complete coincidence, I knew the producer of the program, Ranga, Melanie McFadden. And I said to her, look, you know, can you put me in touch with this guy? She said, Phil, I can't break confidence, you know, with this confidentiality here. What I can do is I can give him your phone number. And I said, fine. And of course, I heard nothing. And uh, went on for six months and it, it was almost at the back of my mind. And then I got a phone call and it was him. Would I come over to Hathersage and meet him? So I drove over to the panel and on the way, I actually did an interview on Radio 5. I had an argument with Jack Straw over Hillsborough on Radio 5 on, on my way over in the studio. And then I went on to meet, uh, to meet this guy. And um, we met and uh, I, was, I was always a pretty active mountaineer and hill walker. So walking in the Pennines was great. And he told me his story and it was stunning, you know. Um, and we met two more times. And then on the third occasion, I was over and we met at the cafe, we did the same thing, went walking. And we just talked about it. We were just going over the same ground. We got back to the cafe. Joe, we got to a pub actually. We were just got a pot of tea. And he said, I'm just going out for a minute. He went out and he brought a um a, 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 an a4 file box and he put it down he said have a look at that and i opened it and there on the front was um a letter well it was a fax actually but it was it was in the form of a letter from a senior partner in hammond sud arts um uh, which is a, a major a major well it's a major firm of solicitors at the time and it was the, they were the solicitors for the south yorkshire police and um the on, on, on the letter, it used the words "review and alteration." Any of the any of the attached um, uh, statements, which were police statements, uh, that have not been uh, that are not annotated, that have not been subject to review or alteration. I couldn't believe my eyes that this was actually written, and this was one fact out of a whole series because it, it was annotated at the top, and I could see that, and it actually had his his uh, his name, and it had comments about his statement. It's not a good statement for the South Yorkshire police. And I was like, I couldn't believe this. So we, he then showed me a statement. And the statement he'd been asked to sign had had over 50 sentences removed. And that was when I realised that a team had been set up within the South Yorkshire police under uh, a chief inspector, uh, chief superintendent actually, Terry Wayne, to... Uh, go through all of the statements, talk to their, um, their, their, their solicitor, senior solicitor, Peter Metcalf, um, send them the statements, then they came back annotated, then they were changed, and then they were signed off. And I looked through the statements, and I said, and, and he showed me then the, the final statement, which was pristine. And I said to him, you know, the thing about this is that, you know, you've signed off on every page. He looked at me and he said, yeah, it's my signature, but I didn't put it there. Well, you know, I just, that moment was just, you know, you thought you'd walked into a film, a movie, you know, mm -hmm. this didn't, this didn't, yeah. 
the full implication of what was being said. So um, yeah, um, and a and and then um, I tried to access all of the statements in all their different forms, and uh, they were held in the um, in the House of Commons and uh, for some reason and. I couldn't get access because I don't have a pass for the House of Commons, but interestingly enough, I could get into the House of Lords reading room and they had all the statements moved across in these 12 or 13 boxes, all thrown in, all higgledy-piggledy, not in any order. You know, it took me two days just to sort them all out because there were three versions of every statement and there were nearly 2,000 statements. So I went through it all and sure enough, there it was, there was the evidence. Um, they weren't the original statements; they were photocopies, and so the little yellow, um, the, the little yellow, uh, yellow post-its that were on the top of each page, which would say, you know, make a comment about the statement and ask the investigating officer to go and revisit the the person who made the statement, etc. Um, that, that was all there, and I could see exactly who the team was. I got the names of all the team, and I actually at the House of Commons reading room got them to photocopy a whole set of the statements. I remember paying 20p, um, 20, 20p a copy, and they were sort of like, it's very expensive. And I said, as long as you will take my banker's card, that's okay. And I came home with these copies in, in, in my case after being down there for two, for, 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 for two weeks and got home, sat down with my partner, Dina, and we sat up to, I think it was three, three o'clock in the morning. And I, I was like, I couldn't, I didn't know who to speak to about it. You know, it was such a big deal. Um, went to bed, fell asleep, sat bolt upright in bed, the first time and only time I've ever done it in my life, and shouted out the all new. Because what was self-evident to me, Lord Justice Taylor knew, the Home Office knew, criminal prosecutors knew, everyone involved in Hillsborough, including the coroner, knew that the police statements had been subject to review and alteration. What I didn't anticipate was that when I was on the panel and we accessed all of the ambulance service statements, that they'd gone through a process of review and alteration as well. And I felt so conned by that because I'd interviewed the senior ambulance officer involved at Hillsborough in the immediate aftermath, when I was working on the Hillsborough project, I'd interviewed him and they told me that they had written their statements with their own solicitors and handed them over to the South Yorkshire police because they didn't trust the police with their statements. Of course, now it all fell into place all those years later on the panel. The reason that they had retained ownership of the process was because they were reviewing and altering their own statements. And interestingly enough, on the panel, when we had the factual accuracy checking part of the panel, which you do with um, the organisations who participated, and we would only allow them to see the quotes that we were using from their documents. We wouldn't allow them to see the report. And when... Um, um, myself and uh, Bill Kirkup, who was the medic on, on the panel, met with the uh, ambulance service. 
they were one of the groups that really objected to the way the report was, um, was, was, was being written, even though they only saw their own evidence because or they only saw their own statements. And I think that was because the genie was out of the bottle. The ambulance service had changed, reviewed and altered their statements as well. And, you know, the, the, the hard thing for us to take over that is that we didn't expect that the ambulance service would feel the need to cover their own tracks. But, of course, we've since, we've since realised that the emergency plan was never, was never in, in initiated, that the two senior officers who were at the ground went down to the Leppings Lane Terrace and walked away, that we lost valuable minutes in getting the ambulances there. When the ambulances came, the guys parked up their vehicles and ran into the ground, leaving their vehicles, boxing in the other ambulances so you couldn't get the other ambulances out. So we realised then that there were professional questions to be answered about how they had responded as well. Because no one is in any way um, trying to suggest that the ambulance service um, had anything to do with the, uh, with, with, with the disaster per se. But what we are saying is that the uh, aftermath, in the immediate aftermath, the, um, the, the emergency services failed and added to, therefore, the, um, the problems that were faced by those who were fighting for their lives. I mean, again, it's it, it's staggering that you you know you uncover this information, that you write the book, that it's serialised in the Mirror, which you know, again, was a very important newspaper at the time with a lot of millions of readers, more so than in twenty seventeen, and, and and yet again, you know, we what, what we do go through this what you call the the fallow decade, if you like, and and it, I think it's staggering to anyone who doesn't know the Hillsborough story in detail as to how you can uncover all that such staggering information of a cover-up it, it goes out there it should be in the national consciousness and yet it, it, it's almost allowed to die again and, and and it's actual you know it's people like yourself it's fans as well who, who keep the actual truth alive isn't it because i mean you know i can remember you know when i'm still looking into the story you know, you know many years ago you know sites like sort of you know contrast.org slash hillsborough yeah, yeah. and that contained the truth that as i knew it yeah and yet the truth it, it, it almost got lost again, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that... Well, at that moment when the Mirror, the Sunday Mirror ran, they ran it over three weeks, but when they ran the first week and you open the centre pages of the Mirror and you've got big photographs of, you know, fans rushing across the pitch, carrying those who are dying. And um, the, the headline, you know, is is, you know, how the truth, you know, was lost, you know. And then you've got, they've done it, they, they've laid it out so you can actually see the changed statements on the page. And I just looked at that and I thought, this is it, this is the moment, because now people have to listen. They have, the government has to listen. And, you know, it, 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 it was gobsmacking because it had come after the Stuart Smith, um, you know, two years after the Stuart Smith um report the scrutiny of new evidence and he had been he 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 that the way that was set up the way that was organized and the way it was thrown back in the faces of the families and survivors was appalling and you know he even went into the to 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 the revelations that were made about the change statements and said it amounted to nothing you know there was not of substance and he had it all there you know david who i'd met and 
walked with on the moors. His stuff was all there. In fact, I took him to meet Stuart Smith um, in, in London. And um, he, he, gave him a, he, he gave David a really hard time. So I, I, I felt 1999, two years on, um, this is it. Hung jury, uh, you know, over Duck and Field's culpability. This is it. And here are the change statements for everybody to read. Um, and it is. I mean, it is, it is remarkable how that kind of ended it, really, when it should have been starting it. And I think that the, 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 the process that follows, you know, I have to say, is one of the most impressive, one of the most impressive, um, I think, I, the only way I can describe it, it's like, you know, it's a, the way something rises up from ground level. You know, it really rises up from ground level. It was the consistent um, contributions made by the families, not just every year at the memorial, um, uh, and the way in which people came and supported the families, but the survivors, and the way in which the survivors who were really suffering, there's no question about that, the way in which survivors had the strength to come together and organize. And that twin pincer movement of the families and survivors continuing to keep pressure on those in authority, that became, I think, a major part of, uh, of the story because it was, you know, we've now presented all the evidence. We've actually demonstrated time and time again what the, really, what the real score is. You've heard all these people's evidence. You know, what more can they say? Uh, not only of what happened in the build-up to the, the disaster, what happened during the disaster, but also the treatment that they received in the immediate aftermath. You know, you've heard all of that and you've done nothing. And you're a government that promised us and you've done nothing. And what's more, in fact, in a way, especially Stuart Smith, had kind of thrown it back at people and said, yeah, we've heard from all of you, we've listened to all of you, which they didn't, and they couldn't have gone through all that material in the way the panel did in the short time that Stuart Smith was involved with. And it was internal as well. It was, you know, home office run, you know, so it was not independent. Um, but that was all thrown back um, in the faces of the families and survivors. And still they carried on. And I think in one sense, it, it kind of created an even greater determination. And even though I call it the fallow decade, it was fallow in the sense that nothing was happening at an official level. And if anything, um, the politicians were saying, we've done all we can, except the local politicians were saying, we've done all we can. There is no further to go. And I think that was, that was the background. And it was that 20th anniversary moment, which was the catalyst. And, you know, I'd spoken to Andy before, during and after. And, you know, uh, Andy Burnham, um, who was an MP who I think really understood it. I, 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 you know, whatever people think of Andy Burnham's politics, um, you know, he's obviously been a, a minister in the Labour government etc. But it doesn't matter how you view his politics, how you view 
his broader the broader issue that he takes on or his performances or whatever. It took a single person representing the views of a group of Merseyside politicians. It took a single person to make that commitment at that moment and to almost lead um, a Labour government under a new leader, Gordon Brown, rather than Tony Blair, who'd been at the time of <clears throat> at the time of the um, uh, of the the the, the uh, Stuart Smith and all that followed on. Uh, that was the Tony Blair, Jack Straw years. But it took it took him to to make that commitment, and I, I'll never forget that evening. We were the the, the families were receiving on behalf of their loved ones the freedom of the city for the 96. And I was standing there with, with, with Andy. And I'd been with the families at Anfield earlier in the day when he made the commitment and when the fans had chanted justice, mm. you know, in such an overwhelming and powerful way. And he said, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to release the documents. I said, Andy, you can't. It's a 30-year approval. He said, we will. And they changed the, they changed the law. And... You know, that's how the panel came about. And I think that, you know, once we accessed the documents, once we could get into the documents, and even there I felt there was a certain level of management by the Home Office in the initial stages. I mean, what was really important about the Hillsborough panel was the word independent. That was absolutely vital. And bringing in Raju Bhatt, as a solicitor who'd done tremendous work on con deaths in controversial circumstances, particularly deaths in custody. Um, absolutely, you know, scrupulous lawyer, you know. Um, getting him onto the panel and bringing Katie onto the panel, they were two of my major um, conditions for being on the panel myself. Katie Jones, who'd worked on and Jimmy's uh, documentary and herself, you know, scrupulous researcher, absolutely, you know, reliable person. And then the doctor who was on the panel, um, Bill Kirkup, who I hadn't known before, but himself, a very, very, very much an independent and scrupulous person too. That core, I think, was the the real driving force of us being able to get to the full range of documents. Having said that, um, you know, it's now well on record that we didn't even have a research budget. <laughs> you know, we were expected to do this ourselves, were we? And I certainly wasn't going to fall into the trap yet again of using home office researchers. Not that home office researchers might not have been good researchers, but imagine coming back to Liverpool and saying, well, we've got a Hillsborough Independent panel, but, you know, the research is all being done by Home Office staff. I mean, I think that would have gone down like a lead balloon. It had to be independent, so we appointed a research. So we got the funding and we appointed a research team based in my university. I mean, in all this, just just to go off to, to the side for a moment, if you like, um, something that always... Always touches me really about about the whole thing when I when when I read it over again when I watch things when I listen to things about Hillsborough again is it's just the the human aspect in it it all and and I wonder whether sometimes that gets lost and I wonder what you thought about that so for instance even 
even even call and I know why it happens and I know it's not malicious but but even when people say the 96 I always think it's 96 individuals though it's 96 people with different stories and it's too easy to say the 96 same when you talk about the survivors and even when you talk about the police you know in all of this there's individual humans isn't there and and, and it's it's so so wrong to sort of group people and label people and, and importantly like I say the police you know the the there've been some police who've, who've obviously been unscrupulous in in a lot of ways there've also been p- police officers at Hillsborough who've been central to to where we are now as well and you know there've been people who we, we've seen in documentaries and stuff who, who've who've come out sort of broke rank almost if you like and I, and I think there's this hu- human aspect really I just wanted to talk to you briefly about that and whether you think that gets lost at times in the sort of the tale of Hillsborough if you like yeah, I think it's a really important issue that you're raising. I mean, I'm, I've lived now in Belfast for um, nearly 14 years, and obviously I'm involved a lot with many of the families there who were in were, were directly impacted by the conflict over the years, either as prisoners or people who lost loved ones, including children. And... Um, and we still haven't had inquests for most of those people who died. And I think the one thing that always strikes me working with those families, as it has always done with Hillsborough, is the only thing that brought those 96 together on that day was a football match, except for the siblings and father and son relationships that were involved. The only thing that brought them together that was the randomness of death in those pens and you're absolutely correct there are 96 uh, individuals and there are just on 90 families um who would who who because there were some families had the death of, of of two people um and they all have their own personal um their own personal stories their own personal identities one of the Unusual things about this inquest, and it's only the second time it's ever happened. It happened in the uh, in the aftermath of the seven seven bombings in London. Was that the families were allowed to each tell the story of their loved one at the opening of the mm. inquest, and that brought to life for the jury and for everybody else who those individuals were. I want to say something else about the ninety six as well that I think is absolutely vital, and we should never ever forget this. I can't give you a number of how many people died as a consequence of Hillsborough, direct consequence of Hillsborough. We know that 96 uh, died uh, in the immediate aftermath, or in Tony Bland's case, three and a half years later. Um, We also know that there are very sadly um, people who've taken their own lives because they've not been able to live with the grief and the suffering we also know, and I know some of these people well, and I've read this. I've read the lesson at the at the, the, the at their funerals. We know that there are family members who've died prematurely, directly as a consequence of their suffering at Hillsborough, their illness as a direct consequence. Who knows how long they would have lived and how happy their lives would have been if it hadn't been for Hillsborough? So we can't even put a number on it. And yet, and then each of those families has got its own, its own story to tell. But each of those families internally are different as well. Yeah. 
there are those in families who one family one family rang me and one mother rang me and she said, I just wanted to thank you for Hills with the Truth because my son has never been able to talk about the death of his brother. And he read the book and then it all came out. Well, of course, it wasn't my book. That was just a catalyst. It was the fact that it was neat. That was just one example of literally thousands. I would put it as high as thousands. When you think of all those people, we know how full the pens were. Mm. I'm not talking about the side pens, and they have stories as well. Everyone who was there has a story because they are all there but for the grace go I, you know. Yeah. But those who were in those pens are survivors, genuine survivors. And by genuine, I don't mean genuine. I mean they're real survivors. They, they, they know. They, it could have been them, just another two feet yeah. to the right or to the left or the forward. You know, that's what I mean. They are, they are real survivors in that moment. And they have, they, have their own, they have their own stories. They have their own suffering. They have their own endurance. And it will never change. You know, Margaret Aspinall said that the one word that, um, that she couldn't stand was the, 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 the um, I forgot, I'm going to have to edit this. You might have to this bit. It's gone completely out there. <laughs> um, what's the word? Anyway, I'll say something. Um, the one thing that Margaret Aspinall said to me was that she couldn't um, deal with the fact that people would say that eventually you'll have closure. She said, how can I have closure for the death of James? How can any of the families have closure for their suffering? What you can, what you can achieve is, is, is living with it, you know, in a way they can get by. But when I would visit families and I would see that they hadn't worked since the disaster, since their children had died, they'd, they were lost, you know, not, not just Hillsborough, but the injustice that followed, not the moment, but the injustice that followed. When I would go and I'd sit with families, the idea that they could ever have closure, they go to the graveside. They stand at the graveside every week. Is that closure? No, because that's not what their life would have been. You can't close it down. And when Margaret said that, it really hit home to me that closure is something that we invent to make us feel better about their suffering. Yeah. And it's understandable, but it's not reality. I just wanted to ask you as well, Phil, about about the about the inquest. I mean, you you were there. Um, the the coroner himself says, you know, that he didn't want it to turn into an adversarial battle, and then it very much did so. Um, and you know, the the lawyers sort of brought up yet again fans' behaviour on the day and all that sort of thing. And I wondered whether when you were sitting there and you you know you you're friendly with the with the families and survivors and everything else, were, were the times there where you thought, oh no, not again, here, you know, here we go again, we, you know, reached another landmark and then are they going to get their way, if you like, again? My role at the inquest was I, I was on parts of common from my university to work with the legal teams and I was either in the court or I was at home um, reading the transcript as it came through live and it was the transcript that was for the for the legal teams, not the public transcript. 
So I was seeing every moment and some some occasions I was actually in consultation with lawyers in the court while it was happening by, you know, via the internet to pass on, you know, uh, questions, issues and so on. The problem with the inquest being brought ahead of the prosecutions or the other um, the other investigations and the report the report of the IPCC was that we we for the very first time had inquests being held with before all the what's called domestic remedies have been resolved. In other words, all the other court cases have been resolved. That meant that the police were coming into, particularly the police officers, were coming into that court as witnesses and could say what they liked because they hadn't been through the prosecutorial system which is, which, is, which they may now face. So it was open season. And from my point of view, when I heard the same old myths being you know, rekindled and revitalized, when I watched the officers being driven over and organized, I knew, you know, from Sheffield, uh, I knew then that it was going to, first of all, take a lot longer than the six to nine months was, that, was, that, that had initially been projected, um, and that it was going to be dragged out. And, of course, it became an adversarial battle. The whole point of an, of, of an inquest is it's inquisitorial. It's not supposed to be guilt or mm. innocence. But we knew right from the outset that this was going to be about um, the, the, the issues of responsibility directly. And of course, it's, it's suggested in a verdict. You're, you're, the verdict that is being offered is unlawful killing, but you're not allowed to say who did the unlawful killing. Well, you know, it's obvious, isn't it? The, the, the unlawfully killed verdict is going to be fleshed out by the rider and when the riders come the, the the additions to the verdict come and it's you know 15 comments on the police and several on the safety engineers and the ambulance service and so on liability is being established although you're not establishing it in any name of any individual it's about those organizations so when that happened when they knew that that was what they were playing for they were playing to to try and and um avoid any such verdict and any such responsibility. And when you went into court and you saw all these sets of lawyers, I mean, there were, you know, there would be up to 100 lawyers in court on any given day, all able to cross-examine or examine, as it's called in the inquest, examine the evidence that's being put forward. It became clear that it was an adversarial battle. Mm. I mean, that's why a high court judge was actually appointed as, as coroner rather than an ordinary coroner, because it was clear that he would have to keep control of that court. But it was an impossible task. In the end, it was an impossible task because it was clear that everybody knew, everybody knew before we went in, especially after the panel's report, what the actual issues were going to be. And it came down to, you know, the extent to which each of those bodies, those official bodies, um, were liable, even though liability is not in that court. It was obvious that's what it was about. Mm. That was the, the hidden or the barely disguised agenda. But at the same time as that, we also knew that in order to challenge that, 
their legal representatives would try and offload as much of the responsibility onto fans. That meant that the whole thing would be run again. The whole issue that we'd seen all along would be run again. When we saw the actual questions that were going to be put to the jury, and one of the questions was fans' behaviour, that's when I froze. I mean, I just thought, you know, we could end up with an, a, a verdict here that is unlawfully killed and fans had contributed. Hmm. And that was, that, that's all I could see at that point. You know, why is the fans' behaviour being put to this jury when it's self-evident that the fan, as it happened, the jury didn't fall. The jury didn't fall for the, for, for, for the police evidence that had been put to the court. And also, we have to give credit to the family's um, lawyers for their examination of those police witnesses, which demonstrated very clearly um, that their evidence was questionable, to say the least. The Just wrapping up now, Phil, but the, la the last one I wanted to talk to you on briefly was just on the sun. Um, remains boycotted in Liverpool to this day. Uh, there are a couple of fresh campaigns now as well, totally clips of the sun and shun the sun. Uh, we see a lot of taxis now around the city would say, and, you know, don't buy the sun, don't sell the sun and so on. Um, and a bit of pressure from one of these groups has, has led to Liverpool Football Club uh, finally banning sun journalists from both Anfield and from Melwood. That was in February. Um Obviously, that was welcomed in the city. It's it's not not achieved sort of the same kind of response elsewhere. And I just wondered whether you'd seen an article written earlier this month from uh, Roger Alton in the Spectator, who who wrote an article headlined "Why It's Wrong to Let Liverpool FC Ban the Sun." Uh, the conclusion, I'll just read this out briefly, is uh, currently Liverpool is sitting so far atop the high moral ground it is hard to see how it can climb down. The paper wants to sort things out at a local level. There is a nuclear option of trying to get Murdoch and John Henry together and both men have good access to President Trump, but that raises the stakes astronomically. My hope would be that Liverpool quietly drops the ban over the summer. I am not holding my breath. Out of the appalling tragedy of Hillsborough has emerged the shape of modern British football, its stadiums, its massive audiences, its wealth. Out of the sadness too has, has come a belated justice and the corruption at the heart of South Yorkshire Police was finally laid bare in the inquest. No one could watch the families emerge on the steps of Warrington Crown Court last April to sing You'll Never Walk Alone After the Verdict Without Shedding a Tear. But it seems an ominous reason now, 28 years later, to prevent one football reporter from doing his job. Who knows what could come next? And he concludes, first they come for the sun, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, this is a, an appalling appalling kind of um, commentary that you get from the spectator every now and then. I'd like to remind the spectator about the material they published um, relating to Boris Johnson and his, uh, his comments on Liverpool several years ago. He also, it's factually inaccurate, it wasn't Warrington Crown Court, it was an inquest in a, in a building on an industrial estate <laughs> in Birchwood. But though, those things apart, I mean, the issue is very clear to me. Um, and I think that Klopp, in his statement at the time, made it very clear that he had nothing against the individual reporter who probably 
was um, only at school when um, Hillsborough happened. Uh, but he was talking about an organization. He was talking about an organization that had never backed down. And when it did finally back down, it reversed its backing down very soon afterwards. Um, it has never, it, straight, it struck me that it's never done any harm. Hillsborough never did any harm to Kelvin McKenzie in the longer term. And the apologies that came belatedly are, um, are, are, are mealy-mouthed. So, you know, um, the issue about the campaign against the Sun is that it became symbolic, not only of what they'd done at the time, but of the fact that they never apologized appropriately. Uh, the letters that they sent out, and Alton isn't making any reference to this, the letters that they sent out to families in the immediate aftermath, when families had written to the Sun and, and objected to Kelvin McKenzie's um, uh, banner headline and the allegations he made, those letters were dreadful. Mm. And especially as they were the Sun was claiming the high moral ground and saying that they would never be thwarted um, in terms of their investigative journalism. And you know, the, basically what they were saying was that the families might not like to hear this, but you know, the fans were to blame. And it was. Uh, th those letters have never really been published. I mean, I use them when I talk and I show them, um, because I believe that was the that 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 was the tragedy out of the disaster. You know, that was. I, I remember one family telling me that they were and they had that they 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 had their funerals on the day that they received that letter, um, from, you know, the 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 uh, from, from, from the son, and you know so. As far as I'm concerned, if people feel that the wrong that has been done has been so great and has never, ever really been acknowledged in full and wasn't acknowledged in full, then uh, a city has the right to say, we want to keep this out of our, out of our, uh, out of our city. No one is threatening anybody. They're just saying, you know, these are the facts. Make your own mind up. And it strikes me that Liverpool Football Club have taken a belated, I have to say, decision, um, driven by the campaign. Uh, they've taken a belated decision to say that they are not going to acknowledge um, the sun in terms of reporting. It's not stopping them accessing the games. It's not stopping them doing secondary reporting or whatever. But it's making a clear statement uh, that the Sun made a profound and contributed to, you know, not only made a profound error, but contributed to a long-standing injustice. You know, the Sun was, at that time, the most powerful newspaper opinion former uh, in terms of the majority of people living in our society. We might like to think it was the Times or the Guardian or the Telegraph or whatever political persuasion, but it wasn't the, the broadsheets. They were, they, they, they you know, they were not making the running, you know. The Sun was a massive newspaper at the time. Uh, and this was not the only, <laughs> this was not its only incredible intervention. It had had so many others, but this one crossed the line. And it was a line that really hurt deeply the families and survivors. And I think that long-standing that long-standing campaign 
coming to fruition now is because it has been demonstrable the role it played. I mean, in the final chapter of the Hillsborough Panel Report, and, and I gathered all that information for that final chapter and wrote it, you know, where I go into depth about the impact of the sun. That wasn't written out of some sort of um, uh, vendetta that I had against Calvin McKenzie or the Sun or whoever was the new the, the new editor. It was to set the record absolutely straight. You know, they had used a front page to make allegations that were worldwide allegations, had massive ramifications, had ramifications on the justice system, and. You know, I felt that it was very important to have that final chapter in the Hillsborough Panel Report on the media and the media role. And when we got the information and I saw for myself and it happened while I was, while I was on the panel and I'll never forget the day when the document arrived and it was a copy that had been sent to the Evening Standard um, from White's news agency the three brothers who ran the small news agency that handled all of Sheffield's um, police's um, uh, press conferences. When I saw how that had been manufactured, when I saw how all of the newspapers ran with the story, but the sun went big on it. Mm. And of course, we mustn't forget that the truth was not its initial headline. Its initial headline was, you scum. You know, that is quite remarkable. And the fact that that wasn't acknowledged, the fact that even, even when Hills for the Truth came out, even when Jimmy's film came out prior to Hills for the Truth, and then, you know, we go through the panel, there is no moment at which the sun goes, this was the most serious mistake that we have ever made in the history of this newspaper. And we're not apologizing just to retain our circulation or to try and win our circulation back in Liverpool because it had always fa failed in Liverpool. Um, but we're doing it because we really fundamentally believe it and we acknowledge it. And here is Rupert Murdoch coming live from the United States, you know, um, to make his formal apology. That's how big it was. The fact that that never happened has led to this campaign and it's a campaign that will continue and it will continue because the sun has sullied not only itself but has sullied the entire story not only within the UK but internationally and that has never been fully acknowledged and so having an editor coming and saying, oh, look, we're sorry, we got it wrong, and retrospectively, we should have maybe dealt with this differently, is not good enough. It's just not good enough. There has never been any real formal acknowledgement. So I can understand the campaign. I support the campaign. But I also can understand Liverpool Football Club as a private institution that has borne witness to the suffering of those who, of, of those who were bereaved, and the survivors, I can fully understand the football club saying, yeah, we've waited long, it's not come. And to throw it back at Alton, if Rupert Murdoch was to meet with the Liverpool owners and put his hands up and say, you know, chapter and verse, this is where we 
this is where we went wrong. And we, you know, we fully and categorically accept all the criticisms and we apologize formally. Then we move to a different status. But at the moment, that's not happened. I can't see it happening. And it's of that magnitude. So every now and then, the Altons of this world will write in right-wing journals like The Spectator, and they will throw it back at Liverpool. They'll throw it back at, in the faces of the city. They'll, I'm surprised that we haven't got the old phrase maudling and all of that sort of stuff. That that's in the comments section. That's in the comments <laughs> section, I'm sure. And, you know, and all it does is it whips up that anti-Liverpool, you know, emotion. Mm. But now I think the majority of right-thinking people get it, understand it, and will just put that into the dustbin. You know, it's as simple as that. Um, but the Altons of this world have got to find something to write about that, you know, is, a, is in denial. And it's in denial that they got it wrong. That's the other thing. One, one final thing I'd like to say about the media is all of those people who wrote, and I've quoted them extensively in No Last Rights, and then in Hillsborough The Truth, and in all the talks I do, all of those journalists, Pierce and the rest of them, who wrote such vitriolic condemnation in the immediate aftermath that was like a dagger going to the heart of survivors, you know, who were putting all the responsibility on survivors. Not one of them, not one of them, has written a counter-article to say, look, I'm really sorry. Even Guardian journalists like Ian Jack, you know, people who, who, to a, you know, the Daily Post, Liverpool Daily Post ran an article which had some of the worst comments I've seen in the immediate aftermath. None of them have said, we wrote that. We can't stand over it. And we apologise for the hurt it did. No, it's chip paper. It's gone. It's in the past. But it's not chip paper in people's minds. It's cemented in people's minds. It's internationally cemented in people's minds. And I get really angry about that because I really feel that, yes, it's Rupert Murdoch. And what, what more can we expect of the sun, obviously? But it's Rupert Murdoch. Uh, it's, it's those who were involved in, in, at, at the extreme levels. But what about all the other comment writers? What about all the others who, at the time, jumped on the high horse, who made those condemnations, who made the Heistel Hillsborough connection, who did all of that? Where are they? Where were they? You know, who was the, who, who was the editorial, who was in charge of the editorial in The Guardian when a really respected journalist was writing about the Bulger case, the James Bulger case, in 1993? And the headline... Someone wrote the headline, Heisel, Hillsborough, and now this. Equating Heisel and Hillsborough to the James Bulger killing. Now, that was the Guardian, the bastion of liberal, you know, liberal thought. Uh, one of its journalists, David Kahn, has been at the forefront of, of, of recent excellent journalism. But at the time, you know... Heisel, Hillsborough, and now this. It played into the same game. And it wasn't the woman who'd written the article who wrote that. It was one of the copy editors. Yeah. But where's the apology? Where is, at the end of the day, um, who is held responsible for that? 
And all it takes is to put your hands up and say, we got it drastically wrong. And we went down a line that we couldn't stand over. And we're sorry. And then people might listen. Okay, that's been a, a fascinating hour plus uh, chat with Phil Scraton. Thanks, Phil, for your time. Um, I do recommend Phil's book. Um, I'm in the middle of reading the revised edition right now. It's a fascinating read. It's everything you need to know about Hillsborough. Uh, also, do watch uh, Jimmy's film if you've never seen the film. And do take the time as well to read the Hillsborough Independent Panel Report. As we've said uh, on a few times through this interview, it is available online. It is easily accessible. And all the stuff Phil's talked about there is there. There's, you know, the stuff that The Sun did, the stuff that all the other media did. Uh, insight, facts, and not conjecture, which has made this city suffer so much. So thanks again to Phil. Uh, that's been an Anfield Rap special. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.